Well, good morning, church. How you guys doing today? Good, 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 good. Happy 4th of July weekend. It's a weekend for, for us as a country. We celebrate our freedom. And man, today I would be remiss if I didn't uh, enjoy that freedom that we have to be able to gather together and worship like this and thank God for that freedom. But man, as much as I love that freedom, I am thankful for the freedom that I have in Christ and that we have in Christ. And today we're gonna dive into God's word. And I believe that we're going to fully experience truly what that freedom gives us freedom from freedom from law, freedom from religion, freedom from living out of this old covenant and actually living into what God has made available to us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We're in the book of Hebrews, which is a book of the Bible that this guy, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to a group of people called the Hebrews, way to go, you got it, wrote to this group of people called the Hebrews. These were people who were formerly Jews, and they have now come to this place where they've put their faith in Jesus. They now see Jesus as everything that was a part of their faith in the past is now pointing to and was all about really in the future. And now they are what is commonly referred to as Messianic Jews, that they believe Jesus actually is the Messiah. And everything that he writes actually has implications for us because the Bible tells us really clear that now, if you're in Christ, there's neither Gentile or Jew, slave or free, male or female, that we are made one in Christ. And the whole theme of this book of Hebrews are these two words, truer and greater. What the pastor to the church in Hebrews is trying to do is to say, guys, lean in here and see that Jesus is true and Jesus is great. And he actually is a truer representation of everything you knew in the past. It all pointed to him. And he's actually greater than Moses. He's greater than your priests that you have. He's greater than angels. Jesus is truer and greater. And he offers them this invitation into a truer and greater life. Again, it's all contingent though on truly understanding who Jesus is. And so what he does through this whole passage is he leans into Jesus and he explains who Jesus is. And over and over again, he says words to them like this, hold fast, don't give up, don't drift away, don't forsake this faith that God is brewing and building in you. And he's telling them these words that should matter to us now, because that's the same issue that a lot of us are facing. Is this worth it? Is this faith that I have and profess in Jesus worth holding on to? And the answer to that question is contingent on whether or not you really know Jesus, whether or not you get an idea and an expression of who he actually is, or you just have some church definition, or grandmama definition, or culture definition. Do you actually have a biblical definition of who Jesus is? And so he's going to take them here. Now, we've read through the book of Hebrews so far. We're coming up on chapter seven, all right? One, two, three, four, five, six, great chapters. There's been some kind of confusing stuff, but for the most part, man, you guys have been coming up after. I've been like, I love this series. I'm learning so much. It's been great. Now, we're about to hit chapter seven, eight, and nine. And I'm telling you, if you can make it through Hebrews seven, eight, nine, you can do all things, all right? This section of Hebrews is confusing. If you're reading through the book on your own, you're gonna hit this part of the book and go, well, that was something. And you're just gonna get to 10, 11, and 12. And it's gonna go, okay, now it's back to being awesome again. Now, what he does 
In 7, 8, and 9, is he spends three chapters explaining and expressing to them how Jesus is the true fulfillment of all of their priestly ordinances, the true fulfillment of the law, and the true bringer of the new covenant. And he takes three chapters to explain all of this because he knows something about the human condition. And it's this, and you experienced this when you went through 2020. When crisis happens, we don't drift forward into the level of what we want to be, when crisis comes in life, we fall back into our habits. When crisis happens in life, we fall back into our old ways of operating, our old ways of doing things. We usually, in the midst of crisis, do not become the best version of ourselves. Usually when crisis comes in life, that's when people start robbing from each other. That's where people, and I know this will never happen, sounds crazy to think of, this is where people start buying up all the toilet paper they could because you know, like who needs it? Like, again, we drift into crazy places when we think crisis is happening. What this pastor knows is Christ, crisis is coming to this church. Persecution is getting ready to happen. And so what he's wanting to do is to make sure their faith is secure, their faith is founded, their faith is grounded in Jesus so that when that crisis does come, they don't drift back into their old system that was based on law and not love, that was based on a system and not a savior, that was based on religion and keeping dead religion and not knowing and having a true relationship with Jesus. Now, when he's gonna do this and how he's gonna do this, It's kind of confusing because in effort to explain and express to them the grace of God, he takes them to a really obscure place. He takes them to this guy named Melchizedek. Can we just say that together? Melchizedek. Yeah, he takes him to that guy and he explains for like a chapter and a half, this guy, Melchizedek. Now we've tapped around this a little bit today. We're gonna deep dive into this guy, Melchizedek and how Jesus is a priest after the line of Melchizedek, and we're also gonna figure out what in the world that means for people like me and you down here, real life, planet Earth in Georgia. So what's going on in their life? Is he knows that when stuff hits the fan, there's a propensity for us to want a God we can control There's a propensity in them and even us now. That's why their problem is still a problem we face and we have. When things go haywire in life, we wanna drift into, if I do good things, good things will happen to me. And because other people are doing bad things, bad things are gonna happen to them. That's what they want to happen. And what he's saying is, no, 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 no. We are under a new law and this law is love, this thing is grace, not works. He's gonna express and explain that to them. Now, I want you to feel this problem as one that is actually something you experience because I'm about to have to spend 21 verses explaining some stuff that if we're not careful, it might put you to sleep, okay? But I've got to explain it to you so that you can get it, okay? We have to be people who can come to church and actually use our brains, all right? How many times have you gone to church? Some of us, we sat in church for years and years and years and years. And, I, and if I asked you, when was the last time you learned something at church? You're like, I don't know. I felt something, you know? I don't know if I learned anything. Today, hopefully we can learn some things. Sound good? All right, I'm gonna teach a little bit and preach a little bit and we'll see what happens, okay? But I want you to feel the problem so that you know where the solution is coming. And it's gonna take a little while, but we're gonna get there. The problem is this. For all of us in life, 
when it comes to how we feel about how God feels about us, it's usually contingent on one or two things. Let me ask you a real heart-to-heart question. When you feel good about your relationship with God, when you feel most good about your relationship with God, when is it? If you were to answer honestly, be willing to bet most people would say, when I feel good about my relationship with God, it is when I'm doing good for God. I'm obeying the rules, laws. I'm not doing those things I shouldn't be doing. I feel good about my relationship with God when I do good. The other side of the coin, if I was to ask you, when do you feel most bad about your relationship with God? Most of you in the room would go, when I'm doing bad things or when I'm not doing the good things. That's kind of how we go. Now, if we feel most good about our relationship with God when we're doing good and we feel most bad about God when we're doing things that are bad, does anybody see a problem with that? Does anybody see a problem with a faith and a religion and an experience and an encounter with God that's contingent on what I do and what I don't do? What if there is actually a better solution than a life where I'm really not worshiping God, I'm actually just worshiping how I worship God? That's probably dangerous. See, the pastors of the church in Hebrews, he thinks that's really dangerous. I think that's really dangerous. And most importantly, God thinks that's incredibly dangerous. So he's gonna give us this passage here to explain to us what the better solution to worshiping how you worship is and being so consumed with what you do, he's gonna help turn our attention to what's been done. If you got a Bible, I invite you to go to Hebrews chapter seven. He's gonna go to an unlikely place, somewhat obscure place, it's character Melchizedek, to help answer and bring a solution to that big problem that every one of us has faced. Hebrews chapter seven. Before we dive into this, let's pray. Father, we're, we're gonna have an encounter with your word today. And I pray that despite all the things that are going on, we got a big weekend, we got holiday stuff going on, we got boats and lakes to get to and all sorts of other stuff. And I pray for just this moment, we can take a deep breath in and a deep breath out and just allow your word to encounter and affect our hearts. Jesus, allow us to be here with our whole mind and see your whole truth, to be willing to lean in and let things get complex and not check out. Teach us, show us these truths. Help us to know that behind something that seems complex is a very simple truth. And I pray that that simple truth, that simple gospel would deeply affect everyone in this room, whether sinner or saint, whether lost or found, so that we would be found closer to you when our time is done today. In your name, amen. All right. Before we jump into 7-1, if you got your Bible open, <clears throat> let's go to chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 6, 19 and 20. This is what we talked about last week, but it's key to get this before you get this, all right? 6, 19, and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus himself has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now, if you just stop right there, you're like, that's a really awesome verse. That's so good. And then there's this weird confusing part at the end of that that says, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, what? 
See, that first part of 19 and 20, like I guarantee at any moment right now, even in our state of Georgia, there's at least 20 girls named Madison who have an anchor tattoo somewhere on their body. And if you ask them, why do you have that anchor tattoo? They would say, well, it's because of Hebrews 19 and 20. That's what they would say. I love the anchor for myself. That's what they would say right now. Amazing verse. And then the pastor hits this hard right corner and is like, let me nerd out on you about Melchizedek for 45 minutes. All right? And that's kind of what we're gonna do today. So buckle up. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Right off the bat, we're like, man, I love that anchor of the soul. Now we're talking about Abraham slaughtering kings. How did we get here? Let me explain some of this to you. There's a guy named Abraham. God chooses Abraham to be the father through which he will basically bring about his whole redemptive plan for all mankind. He chooses this guy, Abraham. Now, Abraham kind of has a problem. He doesn't have any kids yet, okay? But God's gonna bless him and he's gonna be the father of many nations. He'll be father Abraham. We're gonna make songs about Sunday school stuff with him, all right? Before that happens though, God starts blessing him. He starts accumulating things. He starts building his kingdom as far as a human kingdom is concerned. Abraham has a nephew named Lot. Now Lot gets taken captive by some bad kings. Some bad kings take Lot captive. Abraham has got a spine in him. And he says, I'm not gonna let that happen to somebody in my family. And Abraham rallies together few hundred of his own men. He says, we're going to go whoop up on these kings. And he does. He goes and he (laughs) slaughters these other kings and rescues his cousin. As he slaughters the kings, he takes the spoils. He takes their stuff. And he's bringing that back. And as this is happening, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the most high God, he meets Abraham as he's coming back. And Abraham's got all that stuff together. And it says, Melchizedek blessed him. Now, That's a big deal. So before we dive more and more into who Melchizedek is, I have to stop for a second and talk about who Melchizedek isn't. Now, this is a part where I'm gonna get into my scholarly theological opinion on something where other people can go and go a bunch of different directions. When it comes to Melchizedek, some people think Melchizedek is is what is referred to as far as theology is concerned as a Christophany. Can we say that together? Christophany, sounds cool. Sounds like something you get in your stocking at Christmas. I got a Christophany this year. Um, What a Christophany is, is a time where Christ seemingly appears in the Old Testament before he's born in the New Testament. A classic story, I believe, where this actually is happening is when you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown into the furnace. The Bible tells us that inside the furnace, there is a fourth person who looks like the Son of Man. I think there in that moment, that is a Christophany, that is Jesus appearing in the Old Testament in a spiritual form before he appears fully in human form in a manger in Bethlehem. I do not think Melchizedek is a Christophany. I think there's some things that he has in common with, Melchizedek, uh, with Jesus, but I think if he really was a Christophany, this pastor would have made that explicitly clear. Instead, he says he is like Jesus. He doesn't say he is or was Jesus. That's kind of my reason for that. All right, let's move on. Verse two, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth, a part of everything. So Melchizedek shows up, he sees Abraham. Abraham's rolling deep right now because he just got rid of all these kings and he's got all their stuff. And Melchizedek blesses him. And then Abraham, in honoring way to Melchizedek of the priest, he says, all this stuff I just got from whooping all these guys' tail, I'm gonna take a 10th, I'm gonna take 10% of that. And I'm gonna give that to you here in this moment. 
So he does. Now he kind of takes a, another corner here and he's trying to explain what Melchizedek means. He says, he is first, Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So Melchi means king and Zedek means righteousness. So he's saying this, this Melchizedek guy, he is king of righteousness. He already got through saying he's king of Salem. Now, if you know anything about the word Salem, Salem means what in Hebrew? Trivia time. Peace, yeah. Salem means peace. So he is both king of righteousness and king of peace. And at the same time, unlike any other priest or any other king that's ever been in the Bible, Melchizedek is the only time we ever see the combination of priest and king in the same person. So he's priest and king of peace and righteousness. Key, gotta, gotta lean into those two things. That's a big deal. That's why, and that's really the, the main connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. It's those two words, righteousness and peace, and those other two words of king and priest. All right, verse three. He's continuing to explain stuff about Melchizedek. He says, and this is why some people think Melchizedek is eternal and he's been around forever and he's Christophany. This is why, but again, um, I'll, I have this in yellow. Oh, let me get, let me just explain. He's without father or mother or genealogy. This is not saying that he just, and he's Jesus just appeared on the scene. In my opinion, I think what this basically means is he's like, you know, a kid in the Dominican who gets on the Little League World Series team and they're like, we don't have his birth certificate. Like, we don't know how old he is. I think that's kind of what's happening here. It's like, he's really good. We don't know how old he is though. I think that's kind of what's going on. Genealogies were really important at that time, but he doesn't have a genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. If it was the son of God, I think they would just told us. That's my personal opinion. I do not think Melchizedek is Jesus. I think he resembles Jesus because that's what the Bible actually says. So he continues as a priest forever. So that's a big deal. Verse four and five. <clears throat> See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, Abraham's a big deal. He gave a tenth of the spoils. He's got an exclamation point there. He's trying to make this big point. You don't tithe to someone who's below or beneath you. When you guys give and tithe that church, you're not giving to somebody like, I'll oh, just, you know, that's, that's charity. You do that to somebody who you're either trying to help or stuff like that. When you tithe, you're saying, this is an honorable person to be esteemed. I'm giving up to them as a way to honor who they are. Abraham is doing that up to Melchizedek. That's a big deal. It says, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descendants of Abraham. Track with me here. Abraham has some kids. One of them is named Levi. Levi becomes a priest. If you wanted to be a priest, a Hebrew priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. What they would do, the priests, because their job was to be priests, not tent makers or wine makers or bread makers or blacksmiths or whatever, because they were priests, they would get a tenth, a tithe from the people so that they could have their basic needs met. All right, he's just saying that's what happened here. He's explaining that to them. Verse six to eight, but this man, he's talking about Melchizedek, he does not have his descent, his bloodline from them, Levi, and he received tithes from Abraham. So what he's saying here is Melchizedek got tithes before tithes even exist because he got them from Abraham. And then he blessed him and he had the promise, gave him promises. And then he says, it's beyond dispute that the inferior, inferior is blessed by the superior. 
So Melchizedek is superior to Abraham and he is blessing Abraham down. He's saying, we all get that. Verse eight, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. He's talking about how the Levitical law worked. In the other case, by one from whom it is testified that he lives. That's talking about Melchizedek. Get track through, stay with me guys. He says, one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithe through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. See, this is why we come to this passage and we're like, bro, what are we talking about here? We're talking about, first of all, we're talking about Abraham and Melchizedek. I don't know a whole lot about those guys. And then we talked about tithes for a long time. And I know I'm not like crazy, crazy about that. I would like to you know, be able to get a jet ski, but I got to give money to church. And then he starts talking about loins and not like food loins, like loin loins. And it's just so confusing. But here's what he's saying here. He's saying, when Abraham was there and he meets Melchizedek, Melchizedek blesses him and Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe. In essence, it is like Levi, the one who people tithe to now, is giving him a tithe because Levi is in Abraham's loins because he comes from his line. Do I need to get any more graphic there? Okay, great. Verse 11. <laughs> All right, this is where it starts to go. Oh, okay, we're stop talking about tithes and loins. And now we're talking about spiritual stuff. Verse 11. Now, if perfection, key word there, perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Okay. So you have these priests, they come from the line of Levi. I'm going to show you a graph in a minute. That's going to make some more sense there. If perfection could be attainable through that. And he gives a little parenthesis here for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? What he's saying here is, if you could be perfect through keeping the Levitical law perfect, why would you need Jesus to be a priest to intercede for you? Why do you need Jesus if you could be perfect on your own? That you wouldn't. And the point he's trying to make there is you could not be perfect on your own. That's why you had to have a savior in Jesus who was totally perfect. All right. From here, he says, and rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Now, let me explain some of this to you. All right. So if you, none of this has made sense yet, visual learners, let's unite. There's Abraham and Sarah. They have a child. His name is Isaac. Okay. This is the one who slaughtered. This is the one who Melchizedek shows up to. All right. Abraham, way up here. He has a kid named Isaac. Isaac marries a lady named Rebecca. Isaac has a kid named Jacob. And Jacob, uh, if you haven't noticed yet, people in red with girl names are women who got married. And Jacob <clears throat> has four, <laughs> frowned upon, don't recommend. Uh, Jacob has four. <laughs> um, and the numbers here you can see, this is the 12 sons of Jacob who become the 12 tribes of Israel. You have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali, and Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, if you wanted to become a priest, the only way you could become a priest, like work at the church, so to speak, is if you were from number three, if you were from Levi. This is, this is why the book is called Leviticus. Levi is in there. The reason you start your Bible reading plan and you give up at Leviticus is because, right? is because Leviticus is the priest's manual. You're like reading priesthood for dummies. That's why you read it and you're like, this is so boring. Why do I need to know this? It's what the priest had to know in order to be a priest to go between God and represent man to God and represent God to man. It was what the priest would do, all right? So that's Levi. And if you're from any of these other tribes, 
you cannot be a priest. Now, everybody who's getting Hebrews written to them, they know and understand that. So when the pastors of the Hebrew church is like, Jesus is your great high priest, they're going like, well, hold on. We know Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. And so what he's trying to do is explain this to them. That's why he's saying he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not a priest in the order of Levi. Any of this make sense? Okay, great. Let's keep going. He's gonna explain a little bit more here. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. When he says the one right here, he's talking about Jesus. He says, guys, we're, I'm talking to you about Jesus. Jesus is the one who Melchizedek was pointing to. Jesus, these things were spoken. He belonged to a different tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. So the tribe that Jesus was from, like Jesus actually had a genealogy. He didn't just and appear in a manger in Bethlehem. He had a family lineage, all right? No one from his family ever served at the altar for it is evident that our Lord was a descendant of where? Judah. He, that was another one of those names that had a number attached to it. He was from Judah. That's why Jesus is referred to as the lion of Judah. It says, and in connection with that, the tribe Moses said nothing about the priesthood. So Moses never told him like, hey, you can get priests and you get most of them from Levi and then one or two from Judah. Moses didn't say that. This, is because, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. He's talking about Jesus, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent. He said, okay, so somebody has become a priest and it's not because they were legally in the lineage of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. Key word there. All right, so he's gonna to explain to them, here's how Jesus has become a priest, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not in a priest in the order of Levi. He became a priest, not the way guys become priests. You know how you become a priest in the Old Testament? Some other priest dies, okay? <laughs> one would die, and then another one take their place. Now, Jesus, this is where he's different. This is where he's in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is anointed and appointed to become the priest, and what Jesus does we know this, it's our Easter story. Jesus dies, but doesn't stay dead. Jesus has the indestructible life and experiences resurrection power as God on the third day raises him up victorious. And that's why we can say we have an eternal forever priest in Jesus, not just somebody who offered a sacrifice for us, but someone who became a sacrifice for us and did the sacrificing as he surrendered his life to Roman crucifixion there on a cross. And then God in his sovereign grace resurrected him three days later. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's in quotes right there. He's quoting from Psalm 110, where God calls the shot way before Jesus shows up on the scene. 1819, really starts to get some stuff where even if you just never read the Bible before, you could probably come to this and go, okay, I start to get some stuff. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. So he's saying, on one hand, we had this law and what's happening, he's talking to the church. He's saying, this whole law thing, this you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad. He's saying, this whole thing is being set aside now, guys. Because at the end of the day, maybe I haven't realized this or not, but it was useless and it was full of weakness. And he says, for the law made nothing perfect. The law just showed you how imperfect you were, right? You've experienced this in your own life. Until somebody started giving you laws, you didn't know that you were breaking laws. Says, but on the other hand, now he's talking about Jesus and the Melchizedek thing. A better hope is introduced. 
Here's why it's a better hope because it's actually something you can hope in because it's not contingent on what you do or what you don't do. It's a better hope because it's contingent on what has been done for you in Christ. That's why you have to connect verse 19 of chapter seven to verse 19 of chapter six, when he says, in Jesus, we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that enters in to the holy of holies through the veil to the very presence of God. That's 619, it connects back into 719 here where it says he is our better hope because now we can actually get to God, we can get to God's perfection because the perfect son of God has made a way. He has become the forerunner so that we can get where God has always longed for us as his children to be. But until the son paved the way, the sons and daughters could never get to where the father is. Now, when we talk about this idea of drawing near to God, I think it's important for us to understand that when it comes to drawing near to God, we have a better hope. We have a hope that is not based and contingent on what we do and don't do, but on what has been done for us in Christ and us being able to look and see what has been done for us in Christ and surrender our lives to that. When you think about it like this, if you fully understand the best that you can, you can't, you're never gonna be able to fully understand, but the best that you can understand, you get that Jesus fully gave everything he had, not for the world, I know that's John three sixteen, but for you as an individual in the world. Like if you get that he, as God's son, gave everything for you, what other response is there than to go, I'm gonna give my everything for you. To, to, to follow even in the lines of Abraham when he sees Melchizedek to go like, I'm gonna offer my stuff. I don't deserve this. You are the one who is the blesser. You are the one who is the king of righteousness and peace. And this is where it all lines up. See, Jesus is both our king. Jesus is both our king and priest of righteousness and peace. He's a king in the fact that Jesus is the one who makes us strong. He's the one who allowed God's justice to reign through his life and he brings justification through sinners. But at the same time, he's also the priest. What the priest would do, he would intercede on behalf of the people's weaknesses. And what has never happened in the Bible other than two people, Melchizedek and Jesus is at the very same time, that one person, whether it's Melchizedek or Jesus, at the very same time, they were king and priest. And I'm telling you, you have to have a Jesus who is both, who is fully the king, the Lord of your life, the one who provides, the one who protects, the one who reigns, rules, and sets the governances for your life, but at the very same time, the one who sees your weakness and willingly sacrifices so that your sins are covered. But what he sacrifices or what he asks for sacrifice is not your things, your flesh. He gives his very own. This is why we have verse 21 and 22. He says, and it was not about an oath for those who formerly became priests were made without an oath. They just fell in line because that was their family line. But this one was made a priest by an oath, by a promise. Remember we talked about oaths and promises last week. He's made by a promise from God, the one who said to him, 
This is him again quoting Psalm 110. Psalm 110, just think for you to know and understand, Psalm 110 is the most quoted in the New Testament passage from the Old Testament. So there's a lot to go in there. Go back and read it. It's awesome. He says, he's quoting here, this makes Jesus our, uh, where was the quote? Sorry. Uh, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And what this does, this is cool here. He says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, a better covenant. And when he's talking about this better covenant, this is, this is to bring it back down to earth, to go, how does their problem actually affect my problems down here? For us, if we are honest, as much as we love the grace of God, as much as we love the fact that we have a Messiah, as much as we enjoy all of that aspect and truth about our lives, if we get honest with ourselves, we really like this new covenant that we're under grace, not saved by works, but saved by faith. But at the same time, there's this part of us that really craves an old covenant, that really craves if you do good things, you get good things. That can, get, get, that can actually get a God to owe you. See, deep inside the heart of every person in this room is a little bit of the older brother in the prodigal son story. Let me recap that story a little bit for you. This, this, Jesus tells this parable, little story, big truth. He says, there's this father, he's wealthy. He has two sons, an older one and a younger one. He says, the younger one comes up to him and he's like, hey, um, dad, I wanna get all your stuff. I wanna go into the far country. And he takes all the father's uh, wealth and his portion of it at least. And he goes out into the far country and he completely wastes everything that the father had given him. And then he has a wake up moment. He realizes, man, uh, even the slaves at my father's estate, they have it better than I have it right now. I'm gonna return and I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna work my way out of this failure and mistake that I made. Even his mind, still thinking religious. I'll never get back my relationship. I need to go back though and work myself off if he doesn't kill me when I get there. And you know the story. It's one of the oldest ones, most famous ones in the book. He gets down the road, father sees him coming, the father runs to him, stinky mess and all, tattered clothes and all, smells like a liquor cabinet and all, runs to this son, wraps his arms around him, kisses the dirt off of his face, puts a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, throws a giant party. He says, go get the fattened calf, we're having brisket tonight. You know, those, uh, you know, giant party, all this is going on. Meanwhile, there's an older brother and this is where many of us can get in this life. And the older brother, like he's not on the dance floor. He's over here off to the side. He's in his chambers. He's far enough away where all he can hear, like he hears the music on the dance floor start and he's just here, he's over in his room. And he just, he's sitting and he's just getting angry. Every, every bass thump he hears, he's just, he starts smelling smoke brisket all the way in his room and he's just, he's just getting angry and angry and angry. Meanwhile, the father kind of looks around. He's like, hey, Where's your older brother? He's like, I don't know. I'm just, he just danced. The younger brother, he's on the dance floor. He's getting after it. He's enjoying the grace of God. Father leaves the party. Comes to the older brother, the one who stayed home. The one who was in the father's house, but never had the father's heart. He says, son, why aren't you on the dance floor? Come on. And the older brother's like, Dad, are you for real? Have you taken your medicine? Like, we should be killing him for what he did. He treated you like you were dead to him and now you're just gonna let him back in the family? And the father, he goes, no, 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 son. You're living under law. I'm a father under grace. My son of, this son of mine was, was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. He was blind, but now he sees. 
And the older brother hates that notion of a God and a father who rocks and rolls with love and not law. And you can hear it in his words. He says, all this time, dad, I've been out here just slaving away. I've been doing everything you asked me to do. And never once you gave me and my friends a young goat so we could have a party. But this son of yours comes on in and you're just gonna have this big old party. See, the older brother stayed in the house and did all the things that he was supposed to. Why? Because he loved his daddy so much? No. So that his daddy would owe him so that he could have a God he could control. A God that would do what he thought he needed to do for him when his time of need came. And many of us, if we're honest, that's the God we want. A God who makes sense. Where two plus two equals four. Where good people get good things and bad people get bad things. And this story reminds us what I believe the Hebrew pastor was trying to get his church to remember. He was saying to these Hebrew people, guys, don't think that you can go back into this old way of religion, that you can have this moment. I believe if he could foretell the future, we can look at it and know what was happening because we can read the history books and see what happened. The pastor will look at him and be like, hey, you're gonna have this propensity. When Rome comes in, they start trying to kill all you guys. You're gonna have an unbelievable moment in your time where you go, God, just kill all these Romans. And what God's gonna need you to do is go say the same words that your savior said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You're gonna have these moments when things are gonna get hard and you're gonna wanna go, okay, God, well, maybe you just need to sacrifice some more animals so that this persecution would let itself go a little bit. He said, no, no, no. The door to law, the door to works-based faith, that door has closed. What Jesus now opened up is a whole new way to get into the Holy of Holies and is coming through his grace and grace alone. And so what I'm asking us to do is to be people who fully surrender our older brother tendencies, whether you're religious or you're rebellious, we have to both repent of the things that we do wrong and we have to repent of the things we do right for the wrong reasons so that we would get a God who owes us one. Now, I'm gonna with the rest of the time that I have left, which isn't a lot. I'm gonna answer that question that is maybe on your mind, which is hopefully, okay, Trent, what in the world do I do with this, okay? And I'm gonna answer it in a way that I'm not supposed to answer it. If I, if I called up uh, a few of my preaching professors from college and I said, hey, I got this message. Here's what I'm gonna, kind of how I'm trying to land the plane. Um, here's how I'm thinking about landing it. They would go, that's stupid. Don't do that. <laughs> but I've never been much for um, what you're supposed to do. And I'm gonna do what I feel like Holy Spirit is leading me to do because I got to that place in my study this week And I'm going, how do I land this plane? Like, how do I get this to go like, okay, how how does this apply to your real life? And I I said, uh, I felt like the Holy Spirit was kind of leading me to go to the book of Romans, Romans 5, 6, and 7. I know really talks about freedom from the law and new life in Christ and his love and grace. And so I was like, I'll just go, you know, find a couple of verses in Romans. And I got to Romans. And then 45 minutes later, I was still reading Romans. And I was like, well, maybe I should just read them Romans instead of trying to do my best to explain this thing to them. What if, crazy thought here, we just let God's word speak for itself? So what I'm getting ready to do is I want this to feel much less like you at church listen to a speaker talk to you. If I can, what I'd like to do is just give us a second, like I know I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm, I'm sitting down, okay? I'm not gonna go all the way down there, but I'm gonna stay right here. Um, I want this to feel like a living room. Like, like people at a church who just go like, I'm hungry for the word of God. I'm hungry to understand what it means that I don't have to live up to a faith that is based on what good I do or don't do, but a faith that's based on what's been done for me in Christ. Can you give me some more of that? I wanna know more about that. And let's just take God's word and we're just gonna open it up. And I'm just gonna trust that the Holy Spirit that is living and active has been in this place all day long is in your heart right now is gonna speak to you and show to you what you need to see. That I don't have to try to make any more points to you today, but the Holy Spirit will through his word. And I'm believing and praying and I I know this with full confidence. The best thing you will hear today is getting ready to happen. So if you got a Bible, so I texted you, I said, hey, bring your Bible with you. Um, We're just gonna read some scripture together, like a family, like a living room Bible study. So go to the book of Romans, please. Um, As you're going, um, I I brought both Bibles because I wanted to be as close to where you guys are at as possible. I know I normally teach from the ESV, but would you just raise your hand if like the Bible you're gonna be reading out of is NIV? That's gonna be the majority. Okay, I'll read it through from the NIV. Romans chapter three. Again, this is, this is helping us understand what is this difference between law and love? And what is the difference between getting out of a system and, and, and coming into a relationship with Messiah and, and knowing and having a relationship with him as opposed to just being caught up in religion, what I do and I don't do, all right? Paul, he's apostle to the Gentiles, that's us. He says these words, Romans 3, Romans 3 20 through 28, and then we're gonna go to five and then we're gonna go to seven. So just hang out in Romans. Listen to this. Romans 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. So Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest of righteousness. And here he says, Romans 3, 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, God's sight, by observing the law. There's no amount of law-keeping good work that you could do to where God's gonna look at you and go, you're so righteous, so proud of you. Way to go. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin. This is that whole concept of you didn't know it was something bad until somebody told you, you're not allowed to do that, big fellow. And then you went, oh, my bad. And then you realized you made a mistake. 21, he explains that even more. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. That's his way of saying everything was pointing to this time when this law would be fulfilled and completed. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So there's the question. Do I believe in Jesus If I believe in Jesus, now again, I've talked about this at length here at MCC. Belief is not just like, Jesus is real, Jesus is there, he's in my mind today, boom, and that's it. Belief in Jesus, I don't know why I sang that. Belief in Jesus (laughs) is the way I believed that this stage would hold me up, so I put my butt cheeks on it and sat down, like that's belief. The the belief that I'm believing when I go get in my car and crank it up, like it will take me home. It's belief followed by active surrender. It's belief that makes itself evident by what I do with that belief. 
So if I do believe, here's the good news. This is, this is the gospel. If you believe, you are righteous. Righteousness is, track with me here. Righteousness and righteous is not something that you are becoming and getting ready to navigate into. You want freedom from your flesh and sin and the habits that you've been struggling with for decades and decades and decades? Start preaching to yourself, I am righteous. Not I'm getting there, not I'm a work in progress, not the things we say when we screw up, I'm I'm such a mess. No, you're not. You're righteous. There's no such thing as righteous messes. You're righteous. Sorry for yelling at you. I'm passionate about this. Um, Now, yeah, I had to yell at myself a lot this week because it was so eye-opening. All right, verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption is is a, a financial term. There had to be a payment for your wretched, messed up, jacked up soul. That was a mess. And he came in and paid that price. And so it's not that way anymore because the check cleared. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice. Wait, sorry. I got off somewhere. Flip way too many pages at one time. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. All sacrifices have that in common, blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Again, he's a king. He has to demonstrate justice. That's what kings do. Kings don't let things slide. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, but not for long. They went on his son on the cross, verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Verse 27. Where then is boasting? You know? You know how you feel good when you do good things and you're like, oh, look how good I am. That's your boasting. He says, where is that boasting? <laughs> He's getting ready to tell you, <laughs> quit. <laughs> you don't, you stop doing that. He says, it is excluded, which is his way of, <laughs> nice way of saying, cut that out. On what principle? On that of observing the law? <laughs> He's saying like, why are you getting proud? Why do you think you, why are you getting why do you feel good about your faith? Like he's even, <laughs> this is what's so hard about being a Christian. It's like you do good stuff, you still get in trouble. Um, he's saying, why are you fired up about that? Are you doing it because you observe the law? He says, no, we did that because we had faith. And the good stuff that came out of your life wasn't because you were good at obeying the law. It's because the goodness of Christ was falling out of your life as you walked with him. Verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Good stuff. All right, track with me now to chapter five, verses one through five. Chapter five, verses one through five. All right, stick with me. We're in the living room. All right, stay here. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, same idea, we have peace with God. He's a king of righteousness and a king of what? Peace. Salem, shalom. He makes peace with God. Now, that's a big deal because we weren't, we weren't neutral to God, all right? It wasn't like, hey, we're God indifferent. No, you were his enemy. Ephesians made that very clear. You were enemies of God. He called us sons and daughters of disobedience. Like, like if, if God calls you what sounds like a metal band's name in the word, like you're not good, okay? Sons of disobedience. Like that's, that's what he called you. That's bad. 
And so he says, okay, you were enemies of God, and now in Christ you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because he was treated like an enemy so you could be treated like a son. Verse two, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace. That's that anchor of hope pulling us in by the power of the Holy Spirit into his presence where he's at the Holy of Holies in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because that's what we're connected to in Christ. Verse three, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Oof, knew that was coming. We rejoice in our sufferings. So suffering and pain and hardships on earth is not an excuse to go, oh, if I could just do some good things, bad things would stop happening. No, I rejoice in suffering. Here's why. Because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. Like you're, if there's an anchor to your soul, that anchor is gonna bounce off some rocks every now and then, okay? But it's gonna persevere because not of who it's, not because of how it's connected, because of who it's connected to. Now, this is our longest passage here, so I'm gonna really need you to dig in. Go to chapter seven, verse four, um, chapter seven, verse four, and we're gonna take this all the way into chapter eight, which is arguably the absolute best Bible verse or Bible chapter in the whole entire thing. It's a masterpiece. They're all masterpieces, but it's really good. Seven, four through eight, 17. Let's lean in, so good. Okay, let's pause for a second. Holy Spirit, I ask that right now, uh, I know you've been doing this already, but I for sure, for sure ask that you would speak to your people. That, that by the power of your word, they would hear what they need to say. That there would be a word, a phrase, a sentence, maybe in the whole paragraph that just jumps off the page into their heart and it changes them from this moment forward. Verse four. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, okay? That's good news. I'm dead. I don't have to try to keep that anymore. <laughs> I died to that. That you might belong to another, Jesus. I'm not in a law anymore. I'm in love with Jesus. I'm not in a religion anymore. I'm in a relationship with Jesus. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we are controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies. You felt this. So that we bore the fruit of death. Verse six. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What he's saying is now I'm guided not by my flesh, but I'm guided by the Holy Spirit because that's what's inside of me. Now he talks about something we all can relate to struggling with sin. Hopefully this changes how you struggle with sin from this moment forward. Verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because like I got the law and then bad things happened. Was the law what was bad? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Get what he's saying? He's like, when that happened, I realized, oh man, I'm doing it. And it told me I was doing it. Verse eight, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire far apart from the law for apart from the law sin is dead. It's his way of saying here, man, 
I didn't want to uh, be lustful until you told me I couldn't be lustful. And like, this is our experience, right? You know, when somebody tells you like, hey, you know, stop thinking about that thing or stop worrying about it. What do you start doing? Start worrying more. Like, oh, I was doing okay until you told me I had to stop. He gets the human heart. Verse nine, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang into life and I died because the wages of sin is what? Death. Verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. I was trying to keep all the rules to stay alive and it was killing me. Anybody relate to that? Trying so hard, trying to do what's right. Now mess up, feel dead inside, depressed, more anxious than I was. It was worse than when I started. It's because I don't understand grace. Verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. It's like it was from the beginning, it was the law's job to show you this is a bad thing, but it made me worse because my flesh partnered with the sin that I was committing. It made me feel even worse because now I got shame because I did something bad and I felt shame and now said, I didn't just do something bad, I am something bad. And because I am something bad, I deserve to die. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, amen. For what I want to do, I do not do. Anybody relate to that? I wanna do good things, I just don't do them. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but the sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. Nothing. So to my friends who have not invited Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of their life, nothing good lives in you. I hate to break that to you, but that is the gospel. You have to have that aspect of the gospel to get the good news of the gospel. Friend, there's nothing good in, that lives in you. At the end of your life, if you think that you're gonna be held accountable by the good that you did, and if the good outweighs the bad, you're gonna get to heaven, you will not. There is nothing good in you. There is no such thing as a good person. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And without Jesus, there's nothing good in you. Or 17, or 18, sorry. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry that out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. We can all relate to that. Now, verse 20. If I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me that does it. 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. <laughs> you felt that, right? I'm trying to do good. You try to be nice to somebody, 
and then they just start being more of a jerk. You've been there? Like, you're just trying to do good. It's like you start trying to work on your marriage, and it's like more temptation shows up. You, you know, you start trying to save and get out of debt, and like more stuff goes on sale, right? Like, I want to <laughs> do this good, but goodness is not easy. He's, he, he knows what it's like to be us, all right? Don't think the Bible doesn't know what it's like to be you. Verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in the God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What, <laughs> what a wretched man I am. Paul's letting out, man. This is less of an epistle and more of like a journal entry right here. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like he has a praise break right here. He goes, I am hopeless without God, but thanks be to God, he is my hope. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now we're in chapter eight. My opinion, best chapter in all the word. Therefore, Love this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. I've been set free. I don't owe that thing anything anymore. Verse three, for what the law was powerless to do. This is the same thing the pastor of the Hebrews was saying. It was useless, worthless, ineffective. It could not get you perfection. What the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did the law couldn't do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law, somebody had to meet them. It wasn't like God was just gonna control, delete the law. Somebody had to meet all the requirements of the law and that person is named Jesus. Might be fully met in us. Now, don't miss that. Look at the back half of verse four. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. A lot of times we just think, oh, like I just said to you, the, the righteous requirements of the law were met in Jesus. He did it. Does it say Jesus or does it say us? That's you with Jesus. That's a big deal. You're in on this if you're in him. The righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. And then he tells us some, some warnings on that whole living by the flesh and spirit. And that's where he goes for the rest of this passage. Verse five, those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what the nature desires. You felt this before you became a Christian. You still feel it sometimes even now. You got this flesh and it wants what the flesh wants. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. What does the Spirit desire? Love, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, gentleness. Verse six, the mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace, Salem. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature. Preach this to yourself this week. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, 
And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Again, do I have the spirit or not? Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Friend, spend the rest of your life experiencing and coming to knowledge of what in the world that means. I can't do it in my time here, but you can with the rest of the years God gives you on this planet. Verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. 12 through 17 is my favorite passage in all the scripture, if you're wondering. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. We have something we gotta do. You got an obligation. We are obliged. But it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Now pause and see what he's not saying right here. He says, you have an obligation. It's not to live into the sinful nature. We read that and we go, okay, I have an obligation. It's not to be sinful. I have an obligation to do really good things. <laughs> and that's where we get crushed under the weight of religion. We see this, we go, I have, I have an obligation to no longer live according to my sinful nature and my bad desires. Yes, but you also have an obligation to no longer think that you're in good standing with God because you do good things for God. You have no obligation to religion and law anymore. You are under grace. That door of closed. And the door is open flung wide open to the fullness of the grace and mercy of God. You have no obligation to religion or rebellion. Verse 13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die, point blank. Thanks for shooting straight with us, Paul. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Take verse 13 question I want you to go ask Jesus all week long. Take verse 13, circle it and go, Jesus, how do I do that? How do I do that? For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Okay. Jesus, you said, if by the power of the spirit, I put the death, my flesh, I'll live. How do I do that? He's got an answer for you. I want you to get it. Verse 14, because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Mm, yes, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. God, am I measuring up? Am I actually saved? Would a saved person continue to struggle with this thing this long? I'm not a slave again to those fears, but I've received the spirit of sonship. I've received a spirit of adoption and it cries out, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children same way my boys know that I'm their daddy, we can know that we have a father in God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Everything good that comes to Christ now comes to you and I in a scandalous turn of events of reckless grace from heavenly father. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The word of God. Let's pray. Father, you're here. You're moving. You're active. 
I know today church may not have felt like what church normally feels like for a lot of us, but I think that's okay. I hope it felt like what you wanted it to for us. Jesus, I pray that the power of your word made flesh will kill flesh in this room so that the life of the spirit would be manifest in these people's lives. I pray that the, the power in a passage of scripture like this would set souls on fire with a hunger for your word. Father, I pray that from this moment forward, dead religion would die for your people and they would be consumed by our relationship with the one true God, his one and only son and the helper of the Holy Spirit. As we commune with you now, Jesus, we thank you for your broken body and poured out blood for the payment for our righteousness, for the payment for justification, where our redemption was paid for as you gave your life for us so that we could have new life and true life with our Father. It's in your name we pray.